This winter, I've been preaching through a sermon series that I've entitled Revival. And let's hope the clicker works. It's not working so far. You might have to. uh, Here we go. My hope in this series is to lead us to uh, revival, to a deeper experience of God's reality and life within us, and that God would give us greater spiritual life and through us bring his life to the world, and along with his salvation and redemption. And earlier in this series, let me try again, see if it works. Yeah, it's on. Earlier in this series, I uh, referred to a book by Richard Lovelace called Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, where he talked about the two preconditions of revival. And he said they are an increased awareness of the holiness of God and an increased awareness of the depth of our sin. In other words, when he looked back throughout history, wherever there was a real move of God, these were kind of the two preconditions. One was just an increased awareness of the holiness of God, of when I say holiness, I mean that he is transcendent in his perfection. He is not like us, recognizing just how good, how great, how amazing and perfect God is in every way. And in the light of that, the depth of our sin, how the gap between who he is and what he expects of us and who we are and where we stand before the holy God. And the more that those two are around, the more they sow the seeds for revival. And so if you want to start anywhere in revival, you could start here, praying for these two things. Lord, increase our awareness of your holiness and increase in awareness of the depth of our sin. So over the past few weeks, I've been in the Beatitudes, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, looking at what I think really tries to, starts to highlight a little bit in more depth the depth of our sin. And the Beatitudes describe the blessed life, the life that God favors, the man or woman who God approves of. And this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 6, which is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I think if we're going to understand what Jesus means when he says this, there's four questions we need to address this morning. The first is, what is righteousness? The second is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Third is, what does it mean to be filled? And then fourth, what do I do if I do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. So that's the outline of where I'll be this morning. What is righteousness? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to be filled? And what do I do if I do not hunger or thirst for righteousness? So going back to that first question then, let's define righteousness. In the context of this passage, I define righteousness as this. It's not just being a good or moral person. It's being in right relationship with God and with others. It's living in conformity to his will. It's a good way of thinking righteousness. It's not like that you're some, you know, just moral superstar, but it's that you're living in right relationship to God and with others, that you're living in conformity with his will, that you're loving God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are desiring this, who are hungering and thirsting after this. This is their passion. This is their goal. This is what they are going after in their lives to be in right relationship with God and with others, to live in conformity with his will. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst then for righteousness? Again, remember that the Beatitudes, they're not just like a bunch of individual statements, but they build off of each other. And so let me go back, because this is the fourth Beatitude. It begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, this is where you start. You come empty to God. You come recognizing your spiritual poverty your bankruptcy, that you are completely dependent upon God for everything. You're not coming with your spiritual resume in hand, right? Saying, look how many times I've gone to church, the money I've given to the poor, all the good things I've done for people. He says, no, you come before a holy God empty, 
recognizing your complete and utter need for his grace and his mercy. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Remember the Valley of Vision I had uh, quoted from this prayer book. One of the things that, one of the prayers in there says this, I have cause, go on to the next slide. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins. Again, this is a sentiment that you don't hear in prayers these days, but it's a recognition that my sins have an impact on others. And as we see not just our poverty of spirit, but we mourn for our sin. We mourn for our sin. We recognize that it's not just, hey, I'm a sinner, but it's that my sin has negatively impacted others. It's impacted my own life. It's affected those I love. And more than anything, it's caused the Son of God, the innocent Son of God, to have to die in my place. So Jesus says, not just blessed are those who are poor in spirit, but also blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who see their sin and are broken over it, who recognize the emotional impact of that. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And meekness that we looked at last week, in relationship with God, it's like this. It's like the horse, the wild horse submitting to its rider. Meekness is submitting ourselves to the master in obedience and submission. That's meekness vertically. And then horizontally, it's taking the lowest place with others. That's meekness in relationship one to another. It's not taking offense at what others say and being willing to serve others because you know the truth about yourself. You know that you have nothing to offer. You know you're poor in spirit. You know the impact your sin has had. And so instead of puffing yourself up and exalting yourself above others, you come humbly to serve others. And that brings us to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Oh, I'm sorry, there's a quote first by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He defines what meekness is. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Right? The meek person is amazed that people don't run screaming from them because they're so aware of their sin. So that brings us to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So as this gap becomes more and more evident between the holy God and the depth of our sin, as we see how our sin has affected others, as this gap grows and we're aware of this, the response, Jesus says, is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to want to know him more, to be more like him, to be done with sin, to not have it ruining our lives and wrecking our relationships with others, but to be like God in holiness, to have a burning desire to follow him and know him more. It's exemplified in David's words in Psalm 42, 1 through 2, where he writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? That's the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It's Psalm, 30, Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's seen in Philippians 3, 7 to 14, where Paul writes this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's what it looks like to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To want more of Christ and less of sin, less of self. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, the man who truly examines himself in the light of the scriptures not only discovers that he is in the bondage of sin, still more horrible is the fact that he likes it, that he wants it. Even after he has seen it is wrong, he still wants it. But now the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is a man who wants to get rid of that desire for sin, not only outside, but inside as well. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they will be filled. Notice that happiness and blessedness, it's not given to those who hunger and thirst after happiness and blessedness. Notice that it's a byproduct of searching and hungering after something else, right? It says those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who want God, who want to be like God, who want to be with God and know God, they are going to find blessedness, happiness, approval, favor. It's not the ones who are chasing after happiness, chasing after blessedness. I mean, the truth is, even among Christians, Christians can be the type who are chasing after the blessing, you know, trying to find experiences of blessing, trying to find these spiritual highs instead of just chasing after God, chasing after right, being rightly related to him. So third question, what does it mean to be filled? If righteousness is being rightly related to God and to others, to be in conformity to his will, if hungering and thirsting after righteousness is to go after God and not go after the things of this world, then what does it mean to be filled? What does it mean when Jesus says you'll be filled? I think it means that you're going to get what you've been longing for. Those who are hungering and thirsting after God will find God. They will have God. They will gain righteousness. They will be rightly related to God. Think of Jeremiah 29, 13, where he said to the Israelites, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Or Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That verse does not mean, you know, delight yourself in God and he'll give you a Porsche, right? He's saying, no, when you make God your delight, you'll find God. He'll be the desire of your heart and you will gain him. He will give himself to you. When you seek him with all your heart. And as you're filled, the longing, the desire, the hunger, the thirst increases. As you find God, there's a desire for more and more and more of him. Until one day in eternity, we will have him forever. We'll be with him. And we will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me stop and ask you, what is going on in your heart and your soul as I say these words? Because I think this verse is one of those verses that is a real test of 
whether or not you're a Christian, A, or B, what kind of a Christian you are. You know, when I start talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, some of you, there's like this burning inside of you that you feel this like, this amen, this, please God, I want more of you and less of sin and less of self. I just want to be in better relationship with you. I want to know you more. And then others of you, there's just deadness inside. There isn't that. What kind of a Christian are you? Or are you even a believer? What does this verse reveal to you about your heart? Is there a longing in there? A desire? Because when the Holy Spirit is in you, that is what begins to build. It's not that it's there always, right? That we're always hungering and thirsting. But these are the kind of verses that for those who know God, for those who belong to him, there's this, yes, Lord, amen, make it so. So what do I do if I don't hunger and thirst for God? What if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Eric. Or if you're like, I know what you're talking about, but that hunger and thirst, I haven't felt that for a while or I just don't feel that often. What do you do? It's the fourth question. If you do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're not finding in yourself this desire for God, there's three things I want to say, three places you can go and turn. First is this, look again at the depth of your sin. Again, remember, the Beatitudes build on each other, and it begins with poverty of spirit. Jesus says, this is where you begin. You want revival? You want the life of God within you? You want the favor of God on you, blessedness? It begins with poverty of spirit and continues with mourning your sin, with recognizing not only am I coming spiritually bankrupt before a holy God, but mourning that and recognizing the depth, the emotional weight of what that means to be a sinner before a holy God. I encouraged you a couple weeks ago to look full in the face at your sin, to not minimize it, to not explain it away, to not shift the blame and say, well, I'm this way because of him. You know, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be like that. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be this way. But to look full in the face at your own sin, how your sin has affected others, how you have hurt the ones you love by your sinful choices and decisions. Stop lying to yourself and be honest before a holy God. If you want that hunger and thirst, that desire for God, one of the places you can turn is go back to the beginning of that, to the poverty of spirit, to the mourning for sin. Look it full in the face. If you truly understood your capacity for evil, what is in your heart? What you could unleash upon others and upon this world with wrong decisions, you would run after righteousness. You would run after God. If you truly got what is within you, what you're capable of. 1983, Mike Wallace, anyone remember Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes? He interviewed a man named Yehiel Denur. And Yehiel Denur is a survivor of Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp. And 22 years earlier, 1961, Denur had testified at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann, if you don't know that name, he was one of the men most responsible for the Holocaust. And when Denur had entered the courtroom to testify against Adolf Eichmann, he had started to sob uncontrollably before collapsing. And the judge had to restore order in the court after the commotion that had ensued. 
And in that 60 Minutes interview, 22 years later, after that time when Deneur had collapsed to the ground, Mike Wallace asked him, what were you feeling there in the court? Was it post-traumatic stress? Was it rage? And Deneur answered that when he walked in and saw Adolf Eichmann, he suddenly realized that Eichmann was no demon. He was no Superman. He was an ordinary human being, exactly like Deneur. And suddenly, Deneur became terrified about himself. And he told Wallace that he realized that he was capable of doing the exact same things. Incredible, isn't that? Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way. He said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Yehiel Dunor was right that the seeds of murder lie in every single human heart, the seeds of adultery, The seeds of all kinds of evil lie in each one of our hearts. That yes, it's easy to say those terrible Nazis, look at what they did. Instead of realizing that if you were born in Germany, you very well could have been doing the same exact thing. Because the seeds of evil lie in every human heart. I mean, the Nazis were not some special breed of evil people. They grew out of one of the most civilized and advanced countries in the world. Gordon MacDonald, anyone remember his name? Gordon MacDonald, he was the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the 80s, was a pastor of Grace Chapel in Lexington, Mass., for many years. In the 80s, he had an affair that cost him his job. And 20 years later, in an article for Christianity Today, he was reflecting upon church leaders who fall into sin. He wrote this, From those terrible moments of 20 years ago in my own life, I have come to believe that there is a deeper person in many of us who is not unlike an assassin. This deeper person can be the source of attitudes and behaviors we normally stand against in our conscious being, but it seeks to destroy us and masses energies that, unrestrained, tempt us to do the very things we believe against. If you have been burned as deeply as I and my loved ones have, you have never lived a day without remembering that there is something within it that, left unguarded, will go on the rampage. Do you know this about yourself? I know the world just wants to you know, throw just affirmations at you, right? And just kind of teach you that all you got to just build yourself up, you know, about how special a person you are. And that's what's going to, you know, that's what you need. But one of the things you need is to truly be aware of what lies within you and what you're capable of in your sinful nature. If you feel there's no hunger and thirst for righteousness within you, there's no desire for God, one of the places you can turn is this. Look full in the face at what you're capable of, at the depth of sin. Paul described this dynamic very well in Romans chapter 7. He said this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. 
So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. What's he saying there? I mean, this is Paul. This is not some random guy. This is the guy who wrote half the New Testament, practically. And he's saying, I see what's in, in me. God has put his Holy Spirit in me, but there is another thing, this another force, this sinful nature waging war. And every time I want to do good, that evil's right there with me, trying to destroy me. Not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Maybe you don't realize what you're capable of. I mean, some of you can look back at your lives. You've lived long enough to look back at your lives and you know what you're capable of, right? You know what you've done to others when that sinful nature has reared its ugly head. Let it drive you to God. Let it drive you to hunger and thirst for righteousness that you would not visit that evil, that sin, upon those you love. Brendan Manning put it this way. He said, oop, that's not Brendan Manning. He said, that's not it either. Brendan Manning said, when I get honest... I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. James put it this way, James 3, 5 through 6. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Again, if you find in yourself no hunger, no thirst for righteousness, no desire for God, no passion for holiness, maybe you need to take a look at the depth of your sin. Maybe you need to remind yourself of what your sin has caused in others or the evil that lies within And this is one example here. He says, listen, your tongue, the words you speak can set a fire, can set a fire in a family, in a church, in a neighborhood, in a workplace. Second place you can look if you're not hungering and thirst for righteousness is this. Look again at God's promises. So the first was very negative, right? It's kind of like pay attention to what's inside. Run after righteousness. The second one's a little more positive. Look at the promises of God. Look at what God has for you. Look at what is possible if you were living in right relationship with God and others. Do you understand what God could do through your life? The difference you could make. The legacy you could leave if you walked with God. If you walked in conformity with the one who created you and knows what is best for you. Ephesians 1, 17 and 19, Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Is that power? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, now lives in you by his Holy Spirit. If you do not feel this hunger and thirst for God, for righteousness, yes, you could look at the depth of your sin and be scared into righteousness, right? Be, be, have a holy fear that grips you out of a desire not to visit the evil that's within you on those you love. But also, you could turn and look at the promises of God, at what God has for you, at what God could do through you if you would only walk with him. The legacy that you could leave in your life if you would walk with him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, we are hungering and thirsting after the things of this world, thinking that they will satisfy us, when all the while God has offered us righteousness, holiness, himself. And if we would go after him, there's no telling what the legacy is we would leave in this world, what he could do through us by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You know, I don't usually pick on people from up here, but... You may have noticed that there's a gentleman, young gentleman over here who's just had a birthday this week. And uh, he had a whole bunch of family members show up this morning to honor him and, and out of their love for him, right? Why? Because he chose with his life and with the life of his wife to go after God, right? To give his life in service to God, to his family. And now, he has people who come to celebrate, to honor, and a church that is, in part, due as well to his loving service and leadership. That's what I'm talking about here. If there's no hunger and thirst for God within, there's no desire for godliness, for, for any of that, first of all, yes, be aware of, of the, the evil that lies within and run to God, but also recognize what is possible if you would give yourself to him, the legacy that you can leave. The third place you can turn, the third thing I want to say to those of you who feel no hunger, no thirst is this, stop filling up on things that will not satisfy. There's few things that annoy me more than when I am making a nice meal for my family. And then my children start snacking like half hour before. Anyone ever relate to that? Right? And you're just like, what are you doing? I'm making this nice meal for you. And here you are filling up on other things. Because you want them to come hungry. So they would enjoy the meal that you've prepared. How much more must God feel watching us and watching his children and being like, what are you doing? Filling up on things that will not satisfy you when I have life, joy, everything your heart desires spread out for you. And here you are snacking on things that will not satisfy you. Isaiah 55, one through three, God said this through Isaiah the prophet, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. 
Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. And then Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's spread out for you. All that he has for you is spread out before you. Why are you going after things that will not satisfy? Why are you spending and your life hungry and thirsting and chasing after things that in the end will never fill you. Augustine said in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So be honest. When I talk about hungering and thirsting and craving and desire, what goes through your head? What are the things that you're hungering after? What are the things that you're desiring What are the things you find yourself daydreaming about, longing for? Excitement, novelty, companionship, love, food, sex, freedom, escape, predictability. What are the things that you're longing for? Those those are good things, all the things I mentioned. They're good things. But if you run after those things as the ultimate thing in your life, you're going to be disappointed. You're not going to be filled. You're not going to be satisfied. You're going to be racing after things that will never fill you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be rightly related to God, to know him. Consider this study that was uh, cited in Tim Keller's book, The King's Cross. On January 7, 2007, the New York Times Magazine ran an interesting article called Happiness 101. It described positive psychology, a branch of psychology that seeks to take a scientific, empirical approach to what makes people happy. Researchers in this field have found that if you focus on doing things and getting things that give you pleasure, it does not lead to happiness, but produces what one researcher has dubbed the hedonic treadmill. You become addicted to pleasure, and your need for the pleasure fix keeps growing. You have to do more and more. You're never really satisfied, never really happy. According to the article, scientific studies have shown that the best way to increase your happiness is actually to do acts of selfish, selfless kindness, to pour yourself out for needy people. The main researcher's goal was to show that there are ways of living that research shows lead to better outcomes. Some of these better outcomes were close relationships and love, well-being, and meaning and purpose in life. The researcher pointed out that when you are leading an unselfish life of service to other people, it gives you a sense of meaning, of being useful and valuable, of having a life of significance. So naturally, he argued that you should live this way in order to achieve these better outcomes. Now, of course, this study leaves God out of the equation, and it's paradoxically, paradoxically advocating that you should live unselfishly for selfish reasons, you know, but... You get the gist. He's saying that there's this thing, this hedonic treadmill, that if you've ever been addicted to a substance, you know, right? That the high is great at first, and then every time you need more and more and more and more of that substance to try to achieve that high until you're addicted, until your life is destroyed. He says that's the way it is. You spend your life going after pleasure, and you're never going to get it. You're going to be on this treadmill, and you need more and more and more of it to try to reach it. Go after God instead. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. 
the last thing I want to leave you with is this. We're coming up on Lent, and one of the things that we are going to be challenging you is to begin on March 6th with a 21-day fast. Now, fasting can take various forms, right? A fast could be I am cutting out all food for 21 days. It could be I'm cutting out you know, breakfast and lunch for 21 days, or I'm cutting out desserts, or I'm cutting out other things in my life that I have been hungering and thirsting after, thinking that they will satisfy me. But I want to challenge you. One of the best ways that you can address this in your own life, if you feel like, you know what, the hunger, the thirst is gone, I don't feel this desire for God, the Bible gives us a method, a discipline for that. It's called fasting. Saying, I am going to stop trying to fill myself with things that will never satisfy. And instead, I'm going to replace that by going after God. Instead of going after that meal to satisfy me, I'm going to go after God and spend time with him, going after him. Instead of turning to social media or turning to entertainment, turning to TV or whatever it might be, whatever I'm looking to for that comfort, I'm going to instead look to God and spend that time going after him. And I want to encourage you, this is two weeks away, I want to encourage you to consider what in your life might God be asking you to say, you know what, for 21 days, I'm going to say no to that and I'm going to say yes to him. And I'm going to ask that he would increase my hunger and thirst for him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen. Let's pray and the worship team can come forward. Lord, we confess to you that we have been chasing after so many things other than you, thinking that they will satisfy us. And even if we do get a momentary high, a momentary filling, it never lasts. Help us instead to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be in right relationship with you, with others, to walk in conformity with your will. You tell us that if that is what our heart's desire is, our ultimate desire, that we will be blessed, that we will be filled. We want to experience that and know that and understand what that looks like, what that means. And so help us, Lord, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.